Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho. All right, tonight, we remember Jesse Norman, who died today at age 74. We'll go through some of our favorite performances from the famed soprano and talk about what makes her great. Plus, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Jector James Dara, whose production of Semele just closed at the O Festival. And then in the two-minute drill, the fallout from the Domingo scandal continues, plus our hot takes and all the other news from Opera Land that you need to know. And of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. That's 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how's it going? Do we have to talk about sports right now? Yeah, hit me we some do. sports. Um, I'm not going to hit you with some sports. You could hit me with some sports if you want. <laughs> I know nothing I, about right sports. Right on my face is fine. One, so. thing, one thing that I, I, I take as sports is podcasting. This is a really competitive athletic event. And today happens to be International Podcasting Day. Oh, well, happy. I've left your card at home. I'm sorry. I'll <laughs> just drop that one in the mail. So. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you for it next year, but we can make it until then. All right, let's move right into it. <laughs> Voice of Jesse Norman with that uh, Strauss piece, Cling. 
she um, was still singing and you started talking. Oh, I, <laughs> I talked right over her. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was from uh, a very famous recording that Jeff, Jesse Norman live with Jeffrey Parsons. Yes. Uh, I have to say, at this point, uh, we had a very different, I think, episode planned for tonight. I feel like this is <laughs> the Rachel Maddow show, like where we had everything lined up for what we do today, including this interview with James Dara, and then suddenly we got this news, and we just scrapped the first yeah. block. This and- was li- literally the moment I was like, I'd gone through the rundown, what I thought was the final draft of the rundown, and then I uh, I saw a uh, email from Toby, who was not here today. Um, He's uh, morning. With the news. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're like, okay, we've got to change gears completely because Jesse Norman is a giant of the opera world. It's it's too important. And the official like AP wire announcement is that um, she died today. The official cause of death was, specific, was septic shock and multi-organ failure secondary to complications of a spinal cord injury, which she had sustained in 2015. Um, she was 74 years old and she leaves behind a legacy of performances and recordings that made her one of the most illustrious sopranos of the 20th century. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I have to say that like, we need Matt Cummings today. Um, he's like our person who could really give a beautiful tribute. So we're actually going to save like the biography and her, the importance of her career and how she, you know, sort of created her own path in the world of music. For when Matt is here and he can do that more carefully. But today we thought we would just, you know, play some some of our favorite recordings. We took some requests on Facebook, which we're happy to share with you. And uh, we would love for you to call. Um, I'm not going to promise that the call will come through because it's just me and Wesson <laughs> here in the studio. And we're kind of, um, you know, all, all hands on deck over here. But if you want to... still in mourning. Bear if, with us. If you want to call, the number is 847-866-9687. 847-866-9687 if you'd like to give your tribute. You can also comment on our Facebook page and we'll read your tribute on air. And you can also tweet at us at Opera Box Score and we'll read your tweet. So this is, um, Jesse Norman is mostly known for her roles in Wagner and Strauss particularly. Um, and I think one of the uh, the big ones, we got a few requests for this on our Facebook page, uh, is the aria from Ariadne auf Naxos. Eskipteinreich, uh, yes. Exactly. And uh, this is, I think she won an Emmy, or either her or Kathleen Battle won an Emmy for, for the performance that was televised on PBS of her Ariadne of Naxos uh, with You Know Who conducting. Uh, we're going to just hear the back half of Escape Dein Reich. It's amazing. Thank you. 
just an absolutely glorious voice. <laughs> that was the studio recording yes. uh, under Kurt Mazur with uh, the Gewand, uh, Gewandhaus Orchestra Leipzig. Uh, that's a recording that features Edita Gruberova as Zerinetta and um, what's her name? Julia Verity as the componist. Um, a fantastic recording and a really beautiful document of how she sang that role. But if you want to watch it, you can find clips of her doing that aria uh, on YouTube from that production from the Met with Kathleen Battle, which is insanely good. It's so good. <laughs> it's, 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 it truly is, uh, uh, I think, a landmark recording for, I, I think before them, Ariadne F. Noxos was very much sort of a, one of the Strauss sort of side operas that you kind of forget about, but I never forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver never forgets or forgives. I think I was, I came out of the womb <laughs> thinking about that opera. And so. speaking of not forgetting, I think we should talk a little bit about Wagner now because, you know, That's your I'm, in, I'm in charge of yeah. the show. Uh, <laughs> so, in addition to her Strauss roles, obviously, Jesse Norman was also very known for Wagner, particularly uh, Zieglinda uh, in the Valkyrie. Um, and uh, this is just going to be a little bit of Dubis der Lenz. And I remember uh, th this, I think, was probably the first uh, Wagner recording where I knew the singer. Um, this is a, one I bonded with my father over. Uh, and um, it was also around the same time I was learning of Wagner's sort of, um, shall we say, uh, negative aspects. Um, and uh, my father always pointed out that uh, Jesse Norman, being a black woman, an African-American woman, singing this role... Uh, was truly a testament to standing up against the negative aspects of Wagner, his racism, his sexism, his just being a bad person-ness, and bringing the beauty of the music forward. And I always really admired um, her for that. Uh, and certainly it's something that she thought of a lot in her career because as an African-American woman in opera in, you know, starting her career in the 60s. That's an interesting time to see. You know, before you play the clip, I want to actually read a tweet. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is from at Black Amazon. Uh, fare the well goddess of song, Jesse Norman. I probably fared the well, she meant to say. This is a bridge too far. I'm getting drunk. I can't imagine a world without her right uh, the pinnacle of interpreting racist, overly bombastic Wagner was this beautiful power, black, powerful black woman and she's gone. Hashtag Jesse Norman. One of the things that I think is interesting about Jesse Norman, uh, obviously she has an enormous voice. Her instrument is incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, a lot of singers uh, who have really large voices, I think, tend to gravitate towards those big operatic roles and lose a lot of the sensitivity mm -hmm. to the text, to the, to the, to the line. 
Um, but Jesse Norman was definitely an exception to that rule. Uh, she did a lot of concert works, particularly. Well, I mean, we can talk about that quality of her singing when we talk about her as a recitalist. But yeah, even in concert work, she proves herself to be a very intellectual and sensitive singer. You wanted to play something. Yeah, well, this is uh, this is kind of a concert work. This is kind of sort of an in-between kind of work. This is from uh, Girl Leader by uh, good old Arnold Schoenberg. But of course. It's before, it's before he got all 12 Tony, <laughs> so it, it's fine. Schoenberg for the whole family. Um, but this is actually a reduced score version. Um, uh, it is not the massive uh, hyper-Mahlerian sound world of the original orchestration. This is much more pared down, uh, which gives her a lot of opportunities to um, explore with her voice um, the meaning of the text uh, while still keeping that big punch, that big late romantic oomph of early Schoenberg. So let's hear a little bit of the Wood Dove song from Göra Lieder. That was uh, a little bit of Girl Leader. That's the Boulez recording, I should probably point out. <laughs> There's so many. Um, but I, I just... Early Schoenberg, I think, is a really underrated Schoenberg. And the way she brings her romantic uh, Wagnerian presence to it is really remarkable while still maintaining the sort of headier and uh, uh, more hyper-emotional aspects well, of the I'll t- point text. out another good example of what you're, I think you're trying to get at yeah. uh, that's a little bit more in standard canon is the <laughs> uh, Brahms um, Requiem, uh, the Ich hab nun Traurigkeit, which we don't have time to listen to right now, but I recommend that you seek that out. That was one of our listener recommendations uh, because she does go for more lyric, light lyric, 
you know, tone quality. And we know that that's not her natural tone quality. Uh, I will say that also she was an amazing recitalist and there's plenty of documents of her uh, recitals uh, in the studio and live and some pirated ones as well. There's a great pirate of her, one of her recitals where she starts off with Dido's Lament, which is one of the best Dido's Laments I've ever heard with piano. (laughs) It's so good. um, She was known to end her recitals with, uh, Negro spirituals, and of course she is famous for doing that joint concert with Kathleen Battle, and you know who conducting, and that whole album Spirituals in Concert is a record I really grew up listening to. I think I, I've like had it memorized, and I, I actually play that recording at the beginning of every Christmas season. I don't know why, mm. but I love listening to it around the holidays, and it's one of my go-to, just feel good. Like I just love th- their voices and the joy that that album brings to my life. So let's hear one of the famous tracks from that. This is uh, You Can Tell the World. So we have one more clip that we have time for, but before we do, we're going to read a couple of tweets. Uh, there's a tweet from the showrunner of Chernobyl, Craig Mazin. We celebrate great athletes. Well, great singers are like vocal athletes. Physicality and innate talent and mental acuity all wrapped up in one. Jessie Norman was Jordanesque. She was Babe Ruth. She was Gretzky. The things she could do. And I have a tweet from Courtney B. Vance. That's at Courtney B. Vance on Twitter. Uh, Earth's loss is heaven's gain. Thank you, Jesse Norman, for the love you showed, showed our family. We will miss the gift of song you so freely gave to us and to the world. Ich will euch wiedersehen. Rest in power. And one more tweet. Uh, here's from Nicholas Pan, tenor, uh, at Gretchen Wass. No better way to pay tribute to Jesse Norman than with one of her performances of Mahler's Ich bin der Welt abhandgekommen. I can only imagine that, that she is now, as Rickard says at the end, resting in a quiet realm 
living alone in her heaven, in her love, in her song. We actually will finish with a little bit of Morgan, the orchestral version. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by VisitPhilly.com. Looking for a deal when you visit Philadelphia? The Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package has great perks that make it easy to come and explore the city of brotherly love. A lot of love. people think that Toby and I enjoyed some brotherly love <laughs> on our trip. Are you telling but, me you didn't? Um, you know, we had sort of manly... Just like oh, okay, dis- okay. nice distance, we had two separate beds. <laughs> Left some Thank room you. for Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Visit Philly, for providing us with a room that had two beds on it. So. Oh, very nice. Book the Visit Philly overnight hotel package for a fall getaway and get overnight accommodations as well as free hotel parking and awesome seasonal perks worth hundreds of dollars. So this package uh, apparently it pays for itself. It's that the, makes sense. The perks are hundreds of dollars. So, <laughs> I, I can't yeah. conceive of spending anything that's more yeah. than fifty. So I took a plane, so I didn't drive. But I guess what you could do if you wanted to waste your money is fly to Philadelphia, rent a car at the airport, yep. and then park it for free. Oh, yeah. 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 Nice. So you're saving money by <laughs> These renting These are great cars. travel hacks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Start your adventure with free tickets to the National Constitution Center and the Museum of the American Revolution. The rest is just steps away. Perfect for opera fans, the Revolution Museum. <laughs> 
I'd watch that. I don't opera. think there's an opera today, but apparently there's. What about Hamilton? There's a place called Victor, which I didn't go to, but maybe it's like a restaurant where they sing or something like that. I didn't oh. make it. Somebody recommended that I go there. I didn't. I'm so sorry. Well, it. maybe you need this package. But I did go to Alice Pizza, which is fantastic. It's mm. right by the Academy. It's like Roman style pizza where oh. you buy it by the weight. I think we have one of those places here in Chicago. But oh. Really great flavors. They even have non dairy pizza over there. And uh, yeah, they just weigh your pizza and they heat it up for you. And you have a glass of wine. You sit on the, uh, the on the patio, and it's a delight. Well, speaking of pizza, the Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package includes a restaurant card that gives you $25 towards select restaurants in Iron Chef Jose Garcia's restaurant group, the Garces Group. Jose Garces. Garces's. Yeah. Jose Garces's restaurant group. The Garces Group. <laughs> the Garces Group, yes. The Garces Group. Great. Plus, you can ride the Flash Bus. That's Flash with a PH, yes. obviously. For an easy way to get to historical attractions and cultural institutions anytime for free. I did not ride the Flash Bus. I Ubered everywhere, and I had a great time talking oh, to Oh, la la. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't roll like that in Chicago. You're but, saying you're too good for this package? I want to meet people. Actually, my last Uber driver <laughs> gave me his personal phone number. Wow. Because he says the next time I come to Philadelphia, I have a friend in Philly. Aww. I know. And well, I don't even think he was coming on to me. He was married. You could have so. made friends with the Flash Bus <laughs> driver that way. Probably. For more details, go to visitphilly.com and find the Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package on the Plan Your Trip tab. Just click, show up, and wander. Thank you, visitphilly.com. Thank you. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. That's what you're listening to. You're listening to Opera Box Score. And Oliver, who are we going inside the huddle with today? So director James Dara uh, was the director of the world premiere of Missy Mazzoli's Breaking the Waves Love for it. Opera Philadelphia. Uh, something that we can all watch is his direction of the music video that he created for um, Joyce Donato for her In War and Peace album a couple years ago, the aria Lasha Kyopianga. Uh, I just saw his production of Semele, which was uh, revived at the... O Festival last weekend, and I loved it. And uh, he is also now the artistic director of what's called the One Festival, O-N-E Festival, which sort of is an offshoot of um, Opera Omaha. And their mission is to build innovative work and storytelling around the power of opera using multidisciplinary performance installations, conversations, and explorations. And we'll begin the conversation talking about One Festival. Rather than just coming in every year to do a production, um, kind of thinking about how, how can a place that's literally in the middle of the country um, in a pretty amazing, robust city and, um, and a surprising city mm-hmm. um, that has great audience and patron support, how can we create something that is not just another opera festival yeah. and isn't just me bringing in people to do productions of operas or me doing a whole bunch of productions of operas over and over, but how can we make something that is contributing to the form, but make something that also is, I was really interested in, in being a place that could be like an outlet for like people that I meet, especially singers that have ideas for productions and things, but those never come to fruition because they're often singing roles and they're, you know, they're traveling into things that have been programmed for two, three, four or five years. And that really took off. And we started that two years ago and we're going into the third year of the one festival. Um, and it's, it's, I'm really trying to position it and, and this will actually evolve even further. Um, in the coming years, we'll announce how it's going to change a little bit. I want it to be a place where we're making the work that artists who, even if they are a designer or a singer mm-hmm. and they have an idea to direct a show or create, um, you know, create something that maybe is just outside the normal, like we're doing a new world premiere production of mm-hmm. an opera in a proscenium. 
how can we think beyond that? Yeah. So it's really Even taking off. existing it, repertoire. Yeah. And, yeah. No, I... Yeah, or we're taking people like... I. We just had Ellen Reed there last year, um, who's a good friend of mine and an amazing uh, composer, and she had written this opera Prism that I had done the world premiere for at LA Opera. We took it to prototype with Beth Morrison Projects, the producer, um, uh, in January of this year, and um, I was super interested in her voice, and she was like, I want to make a sound installation adult-sized playground that all makes sound that is played by percussionists with a 12-minute opera that we're going to world premiere for that instrument. And that went into an art gallery. And, you know, it was, like, not a normal experience. Um, But it was great because then you have this uh, formidable composer there creating something that is so much uh, outside of a normal scope of, like, sit in a dark theater for two hours. Um, And then we also did productions of opera. So the goal is to kind of, you know, certainly do good productions and maybe productions that take a lot of risk um, of either, you know, rethinking standard rep or lesser done um, repertoire, but also to do events and experiences that maybe tug a little bit at the boundaries of how opera can intersect with things like dance, with um, I was film, just going to ask that with, question. Yeah. What, what type of disciplines are being nurtured over there? Yeah, so this year we did, I mean, we kind of, we had this installation piece, so we were intersecting with the art world, which is like a whole learning curve, mm-hmm. right, for a lot of opera people. Yeah. Like, you know, the minute you put something in an empty white room in a gallery, yeah. like, what is that? And what does that look like? And how do you think of sound in that mm-hmm. environment? Um, we did an entire film series of... Um, explorations of how film scoring impacts, uh, you know, cinema, but also um, looked at like different ways in which um, maybe a live overture or a live score to a silent film can alter your perception of what you're watching. And um, that was curated by Ross Carr of, of International Contemporary Ensemble, who we bring out, who's there the whole time for the festival. And um, and then we did a dance piece t- um, to music by Kate Bush, and we actually got the rights. Um, from her publisher to like use this piece and um, rethink sort of how the rehearsal process via using dancers and one opera singer. And then we did a Philip Glass piece and we did, uh, Liliana Blaine Cruz did a new production of Faust. So it was our more, that was in our, the large theater that we use and um, was beautiful. So, you know, kind of incredibly yeah. eclectic, but it's, I mean, I'm hearing all these things. I'm now I'm wondering when in your formative years as an artist did you see something? That just blew your mind. So, oh my God, I didn't realize that was possible. Like, what work or what artist? I think it was different. It was different things at different times. Like, I didn't really get interested in opera until I was in, you know, finishing an MFA in like theater and film school. Okay. Um, So, I had spent all of my like, you know, initial years in college and even before that, sort of realizing, like, oh, I, I may be interested in, like, visual art or I'm interested in acting or performance or, you know, I was way more into theater. So there were definitely junction like junctures for me of uh, Greek drama, seeing, you know, an archival video of something, seeing um, just things that you learn in theater history, like mm-hmm. Peter Brook's Amazing Midsummer Night's Dream that was so pivotal. You know, these sort of, now I think, like, oh, yeah, everybody, that's like a titan of, of work and... Uh, and a really pivotal moment in theater history, but sort of discovering those things and then digging deeper into a mm-hmm. lot of uh, mythology and different Greek drama. And then I got into like uh, the sort of French playwrights and, and just kind of finding that interest in narrative story was the first part. 
And I, one of my first professional jobs ever was in Croatia, weirdly. Um, I had, one of my teachers had been the intendant of the National Theater, and he invited me for a summer to go work there. And one of my first assignments was on a production of Nabucco by Verdi. And I was like, I don't want to work on the opera. Like, mm-hmm. Do I really? And <laughs> that opera is so hard to stage. It's, it's just so, so hard, much but chorus. they did it outside, which yeah. was really cool. So it was okay. like outside, and and there was also a production of Don Giovanni, and then there was a dance piece that involved some like uh, classical music mm-hmm. at the same time in this festival. They did a Tennessee Williams play, and there was something about all of those things existing in one place, but also me being exposed to opera in the, for the first time. Yeah. Um, in this, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Nabucco came in on a horse in the production I was working yeah. on. Like, it was very, <laughs> like, it was it was very well staged, but um, definitely opulent in terms of uh, me realizing, like, oh, wow, the orchestra, like, seeing how there in Nabucco, like, if you have good singers, and, it, you know, it's kind of thrilling to be outside, and there, I got kind of... I. I found it incredibly intriguing, the mixture of all of those elements together. Because I'd loved to design also. And like, um, and oh my God, there's so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, keep going, keep going. But no, but I, I, I think it was that. Like, and that's what I mean. Like, I wasn't, I didn't just flip a switch and suddenly go, like, oh, I love opera. I'm going to direct it yeah. for years. Like, it was just this kind of gradual thing. And then, and then I, I always like to joke that, um, you know, Patrice Chereau, who I think is, Um, who was one of the greatest opera directors um, who also had done a lot of film. And I had really been into film and film history. And when I found his work and I watched, there's an archival of his Cosy from Aix en Provence. And there's, you know, he was still making work at that time. So it had been announced that he was going to do Janacek from the House of the Dead at the Met Mm -hmm. with Solonen conducting. And I went to see that. And at that point, I was kind of like interested in opera, but I didn't know that I was going to want to direct a lot of it mm-hmm. or, or figure it out. And I remember watching that and just thinking how incredibly detailed, you know, it was incredibly visual, um, which I loved. But, but there was something more in, in being able to unearth performances from singers that felt for the first time to me like I was back in an acting studio course in theater school, like that, you know, realizing that opera singers actually are superhuman actors mm-hmm. when they're good. Yeah. You know, and that was like a huge revelation because I think I had always thought like opera singers are just going to stand there and sing yeah. at me. And to see like that a director could craft performances that told me a story and like there were some beautiful performances in that piece, you know, and incredibly detailed and nuanced and small and in a way that almost weren't, you know, I wish I I was just visiting from LA, but I wish I had been able to see it multiple times. Yeah. And I, I really credit that as sort of an aha moment for me of, of, you know, maybe all the things I loved about Tennessee Williams or rich, you know, sort of American theater, maybe I can apply some of those things to opera. Mm-hmm. You know, the things, the spectacle that I loved of Greek theater was already in opera. Yeah, you I know. was inspired by that. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about... Um, you know, your attraction to Patrice Chereau and your kind of love of design. Yeah. And I joke he was my mentor by proxy or like, yeah. like I never met him, which is yeah. like heartbreaking to me. Yeah. But I, I really felt like, you know, cause then I went and I watched some of his early like French movies and I, I would watch archival videos. And then, um, the last thing that actually the Met did posthumously, uh, his Electra, mm-hmm. Um, was totally devastating and beautiful. And mm-hmm. I just think it taught me a lot about 
um, not designing your way out of directing a scene, you know, that aesthetic and design has always been important to me or like the way, the way that things, um, feel and look and behave and what the world is, is important, but that it was a good lesson to never rely on those things to do the work of what a director needs to do with a cast. Yeah. Well, I, I want to take this opportunity to pivot to something that all of our audience can experience of uh, your work, uh, which is the video you did with Joyce DiDonato of Lasha yeah. Kyopianga, yeah. which uh, I think speaks to a lot of what we're just talking about. I mean, like she is a stage beast and that video is so heartbreaking oh, and awesome. it's so yeah. beautiful. And like every image feels uh, organic, you know, uh, with that work, which is a very high Baroque, you know. Uh, yeah. It doesn't... Really... Yeah, an iconic song. I mean, that's yeah. harder than it would seem, right? To yeah. Like, what are we, what are we going to do with this? Um, yeah, I was, I was really impressed with how, um, you know, Joyce definitely, uh, we got connected via mutual friend and started thinking about that video to help launch her album. In War and Peace. In War and Peace, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, and I was really... Um, I really admire the the social activism part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also, we talked a lot about what the story was of that aria Mm -hmm. and wanting to maybe um, do something with it that that was able to be enjoyed by anybody, regardless of where they are in the world. Which meant that it needed a certain simplicity just to have a kind of universal sort of human component. But when we started shooting, I was really amazed because, you know, that was, that was like completely insane in terms of, there was like one day she was available and it had to be in Santa Fe. (laughs) And like, like I was getting my team together and I mean, I I won't bore you with all the details. No, when you think of, yeah, but like when you think of like, like, Oh, then they shot a nice music video in Santa Fe and it's like, you have to get permits. Like we had to get a fire permit, which only came through at the last minute. So we weren't sure we were going to be able to release this thing in time, yeah. like it was really, there were there were things that were crazy. I mean, it was never like stressful in a bad way yeah. necessarily, but it was just kind of amazing to like, we flew a whole crew, you know, a crew of, I say a whole crew, it was like four of us, but mm-hmm. um, working on this, but like, you know, my cinematographer and editor, and then um, I brought my lighting designer who does stage shows with me started in film. So he has an amazing resume of like working in film, uh, lighting different things for different cinematographers that I admire. And so I was like, you're going to come light this music video for me. And so we like picked mm-hmm. up gear that we got shipped to the opera. And I was like driving this giant SUV into the middle of nowhere where we found this movie ranch. It, this thing, it's like, it was like yeah. crazy. The and, thing about it is that like, I'm agoraphobic. So the idea of prison being a space that's just you know, wide open, like that is perfect for me. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It was like really, it was really fun working with Joyce because she had, she had some ideas, but I think also let us really, you know, play with like where it was going to be and what it, Mm -hmm. what it was going to be like. And, you know, I remember sending her the rough cut and she was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even think that was me. Like when she first appears, you know, like he, Adam Larson, who, who photographed it really, um, and shot it really knew, we had all this equipment in this cabin for the camera and the rest of it was really simple. And that was kind of intentional. I was like, we're not going to drag a a bunch of props and sets and all these things. Like I think you should, you Joyce should be able to tell this story. And she felt the same way. And I think really um, delivers on camera, something that feels like sensitive and and interesting. And that was kind of my first like opera music video experience. Mm -hmm. Like I could kind of had thought the whole thing would work. Um, 
in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing when you get into those things how, like, even when things go wrong, they're sometimes for a reason. So, yeah. like, we didn't get the original location we wanted um, because you have to, like, permit that and get, a, you know, rights and make, because you're going to be releasing it on, a, like, an international label. Like, you have mm-hmm. to kind of do all these steps. And my production manager that I work with, Michelle Magaldi, who's also at LA Opera and is amazing, she made all these phone calls and I remember her calling me and going, oh, I got you this entire village. It was like an entire (laughs) abandoned movie ranch in the middle of New Mexico. And she was like, I got it. And it's like less than half of what we were prepared to spend. Like this guy just basically, she just talked to him on the phone and he was like, yeah, you can come shoot here. And so Joyce and I were like running around. I have photos of her in the jail, you know, in the like Western town jail and like her and her partner in the saloon. And like we were just going like, it was kind of very eerie. It was like being in an episode of Westworld. I was going to say Westworld. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it definitely, it definitely had that feeling, but, um, but it was fun. And then I, you know, now I'm talking about, I'm remembering things like she had all of her Vivian Westwood gowns with her, which are in these like incredible bags and 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 left them in my trunk. So like she left the next day and I get this message that's like, Oh, I think all my gowns are in your rental car. (laughs) It's like, you know, which is like, then you feel, I'm like, I'm like, I'm holding like Joyce Dudonato's Vivian Westwood custom couture gowns. Like, (laughs) I remember going to like the FedEx and I was like, you need to like really take care of these. And they were like, what's the value? I was like, doesn't, doesn't apply. Like, you you know, just get these two. I forget she was going to Kansas city, maybe home for a little bit or something, but yeah, it was fun. This is a good place to kind of pivot to one last topic, um, which is how your aesthetic lines up very well with early music and with new music. And um, there are singers who I know who definitely have that same quality. And I'm trying to figure out what makes you the person that's right for these extremes of the repertoire. I don't know. I'm I'm just drawn to those extremes um, musically, dramatically. I find them interesting, but... They're less formulaic, maybe, for you? I think so, and I think there's a lot more freedom for a director. Mm -hmm. And there's also more to be... There's, you can unearth things that maybe go against what people expect. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, people see simile all the time, and this aesthetically is very, like, in this kind of imagined world, you know, of it's opulent and it's very beautiful. It doesn't, it's not modern. It's not, it, there, there's modern components to it, but it's, it's a, it's illuminating something else. And I guess I'm just interested in pieces like that. I mean, not that I haven't done things that have had modern dress or been set today, but the worlds I'm far more interested in abstraction as an idea to convey things that are beyond just what maybe is in a synopsis that you read. You know, it's why I always laugh now. I'm like, I don't, I don't write, I hate director's notes. I hate it. I okay. hate this idea that the director is like writing what their intent, you know, yeah. intentions were. I'm like, maybe process is more interesting. So I started just being like, maybe we talk to the designers about how they actually do these things and what is their life like when they're creating something yeah. I'm way more interested in somebody maybe, especially with Handel, where it, you get some of the more popular Handel operas people have seen, you can do things with them directorially because the text is basically just endless poetry, right? Like repeated sections of poetic text that are n- narrative in the sense of like thoughts of characters are continuing, but they're not, it's not like Reset that's driving the whole thing forward. That gives you this flexibility to illuminate things that can challenge people or be exciting. And, you know, I'd rather the the worst ever to me would be somebody coming to like a handle opera or even a world premiere and being like complacent and being like, oh, yeah, it was good. You know, <laughs> like I'm way more interested in this that people are like dance has no place in opera, you know, or whatever, like <laughs> challenging those expectations of what you think you're going to get from like a handle simile is, mm. I think, the reason that it's something that's hundreds of years old can still feel interesting today. And I'm about to go to Vienna to do another Handel opera and I have like a Handel. I'm doing this um, Handel opera that of course every, uh, all of your listeners know called Justino. Um, It's not often done. It's a gorgeous piece, but, um, but the designer of that, Adam Rigg and I talked and, and we were kind of inspired by like the sixties sort of desert culture, like Joshua tree, this Mm. sort of like California desert of the sixties. And, um, and so that's a story of this like hero who is unlikely. And so he's created this amazing set. That's like a very almost David Lynch, dreamy, weird 1960s desert motel room. And all of the, cause you have to deal with all these Hendelian things. Like there's a sea monster that attacks them. Then there's a bear that's chasing somebody. And, you know, and so, suddenly setting it in this kind of weird hotel room. It's like all of these surreal things can happen within that, you know, that the sea monster can come out of the bathtub a la The Shining or Kubrick or something. Like those things are obviously like always swirling around in my head, but I just thought like, oh, for this piece, like this, this can bring out a lot of like dark surrealism that's already Mm -hmm. in the piece, this fantastical quality of these, these sort of um, mythological stories and mm-hmm. Greek and Roman stories, like we can bring that out in an interesting way. And the simile here was the same thing, like to to do things that are provocative and bold and not just pretty. James Darrow, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good to talk. And thanks to the O Festival, Opera Philadelphia, for giving me access to James Dara. Uh, I recommend you check out his own website, uh, which is jamesdara.com, and also the onefestivalomaha.org website. Do you like sparkly things? Then you're going to love the ENO's new production of The Mask of Orpheus. That's up next, only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Want to get your voice heard on Opera Box Score? Listen to Opera Box Score live from Chicago, Monday nights at 9 p.m. Central from WNUR 89.3 FM, or, since sometimes you can't really get that station, by searching <laughs> for WNUR on tunein.com, where you can stream the show in real time. Are you telling me I can call in during the show? If there's more than two people running the board, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can call in while we read the two-minute drill, usually around 940. The number for that is 847-866-9687. We want to know your thoughts on the news of the week. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score or message us on Facebook. We'll do our best to read your comment on the air, but please, no thirst tweets at Toby, although I would understand if you did. Once again, call into Opera Box Score Mondays at 940 Central Time. The number, once again, 847-866-9687. This just in... The Two Minute Drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Yet another opera company has found a way to grapple with the implicit racism of one of the war horses of the canon. This time, a member of the Canadian Opera Company's Equity, Diversity, and Inclu- uh, Inclusivity Committee, Richard Lee, has been brought on as a cultural consultant for the company's new production of Turandot. One of the more obvious adjustments that director Robert Wilson will make for the current production is the renaming of Ping, Pang, and Pong to Jim, Bob, and Bill. This is not a joke. Turandot runs through October 27th in Toronto. And speaking of Turandot, the Grand Teatro de Lisieux has created a shocking commercial for their upcoming production of the Puccini opera, which begins with a couple laying in bed, singing Nessun Dorma, and ends with Leo stabbing herself and splattering blood all over the bedroom. You've got to check it out. We pulled a link on our website. A uh, feel-good story from New York City's Korean town, Shanghai Mong is a Korean-Chinese restaurant that offers its patrons unexpected entertainment opera from tenor Alejandro Olmedo. He's forged a friendship with chef Tora Yi that allowed the strange partnership to blossom. Now you can enjoy some rigoletto with your kimchi dumplings. The mother of teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg is an opera rock star. Melina Ernman is a mezzo-soprano who began her career singing in operatic productions in Sweden before taking on roles in major European opera houses, including the Berlin Staatsoper, the Grand Theater de Lisieux in Barcelona, and Theater an der Wien. A mysterious woman sing, oh, singing O Mio Babino Caro in the Los Angeles metro went viral last week, prompting a search for the identity of the singer. Eventually, they found Emily Zamorka, who was surprised to learn she'd gone viral. This is a quote from her. I am sleeping actually on the cardboard right now in the parking lot. I will be so grateful to anyone who is trying to help me to get off the streets and to have my own place to have my instrument. English National Opera is concentrating on all the right things for their upcoming production of Harrison Whistles' The Mask of Orpheus, at least if you're into Swarovski crystals. 400,000 of the crystals will be sewn into various costume pieces of the production, no doubt causing a real headache for the lighting designer. Irish composer Connor Mitchell is turning political hate speech into opera with his new work, Abomination. Inspired by a homophobic tirade by a member of Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, the opera is, quote, a vital examination of the violent impact that words have on all those who are treated as less than in terms of human rights and other in terms of social inclusion. 
The Domingo scandal continues. The tenor announced he was canceling all his appearances at the Met after a series of articles accusing the Opera House's uh, lackluster response on Peter Gelb. The latest step in the ramping criticism of the Met came as Vittorio Grigolo, Grigolo was suspended after allegations that he'd groped a chorus member while on tour with the Royal Opera House. The tenor was also suspended by ROH and is currently under investigation. The Queen Bee herself, Beyonce, showed her operatic chops in a clip from the making of The Lion King. Will those 30 seconds of Beyonce vocalizing to an F-sharp convince her audience to cross over to opera? Mm, The verdict is still out, but we will let you know as soon as she releases her album of Puccini arias. That is a joke. On the disabled list, Zelko Lucic Lucic, was replacing Domingo uh, Domingo at Saturday's performance of Macbeth, but he was indisposed, allowing for bass baritone Craig Kolkholk Kalkoff to make his event debut. Congrats to Craig. At least one good thing came out of this. Exit stage left. Tenor Francisco Casanova died last week at the age of 61. Casanova was known for his leading roles in many Verdi operas, which made him an official honorary member of the board of directors of the International Institute of Verdi Studies in 2000. Dutch bass Jaco Huypin died earlier this month at the age of 57. His agent called him one of the most successful singers from the Netherlands. The Rimsky-Korsakov St. Petersburg State's Conservatory has also announced the death of mezzo-soprano Irina Bogacheva at age 80. She is most known for her collaborations with the Marinsky Opera House, which was the Kirov when she started her career, and for premiering Shostakovich's six poems of Marina Tsetsietava in 1973. And on this day, September 30th, it was the premiere of the first opera I ever saw, Mozart's The Magic Flute, in 1791. And believe it or not, it was also the premiere of the second opera I ever saw, Bizet's The Pearl Fishers, in 1863. And Gershwin's Porgy and Bess also premiered on this day in 1935. And that is your two-minute drill. is Melina Ehrenmann, uh, the mother of Greta Thunberg. Of course. <laughs> of course. Everybody's favorite mezzo. <laughs> I mean, I love how um, you know we all want to get on the Greta Thunberg bandwagon, and as opera singers or opera community, we found our way, our connection <laughs> we, to we her. We in. can take credit for her amazing work because her mother is an opera singer. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Um, I also loved uh, when I was doing the little, uh, you know, on this day bit, I was like, oh, the magic flute. I, uh, the, great. And then I saw Pearl Fishers, literally my first two operas I ever saw premiered on the same day. Strangest combination. No idea. <laughs> Pearl Fishers is a weird second opera. Let's, let's not My first the opera was there. Das Rheingold. Really? Yeah. You. Yeah, I Mr. know. Mozart it ruined it. It ruined it for me. <laughs> it ruined it for me. It really did. It was one of the most boring things I'd ever seen. So I was too young. I was like 15 years old. That's not the first I was opera. five when I yeah. saw Magic Flute. Get in okay. my lane. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's see. What are some things? I think the, the big news, of course, is the uh, Domingo scandal continuing. Continue, yeah. 
there were so many ups and downs over the past week. I think the big one um, that most people uh, were talking about was the apparently uh, there was a meeting, a sort of an all staff meeting, as it were, uh, with between Peter Gelb and the staff of the Metropolitan Opera, uh, in which he uh, downplayed Domingo's uh, al- the allegations against Domingo uh, to the entire staff, and generally said that tried to explain away why the Met had not kicked him out or at least suspended him at that point. Yeah, when we began talking about this last week with um, that story from NPR where all the employees at the Met were saying, hey, what's going on here? Why are are you allowing this to continue? And then Zoe Madonna from the Boston Globe wrote a galvanizing critique uh, asking Peter Gelb to step down. It is an amazing yeah. article. Uh, we'll put the link and, on our website. And, and Majette like retweeted it. Yeah, um, <laughs> like three but, seconds into her retirement. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say that like this might have had the effect of causing Domingo to actually withdraw from his yeah. performances. So that all happened last week. It's I feel like it's the same pace of news as the Trump scandal with the call to Ukraine. So everything is happening very fast. And getting swept up in it as well is... Victorio Grigolo. Yes. Um, and I mean, I don't, I'm famous for defending people who I shouldn't defend, but um, <laughs> Oliver, don't this do is, it. I'm not going to defend it, but I'll just say that like <laughs> seeing him on stage uh, and seeing how he just needs the audience's approval. I just, I mean, I don't know cause I wasn't there, but I can already imagine. I said, apparently he groped some chorus member. Right. Like, during a curtain call, right. that he was doing it for a laugh, or he was doing it because he just wanted more attention than. Well, he it doesn't matter so, because it was. It's it's still a, a oh, line across the boundary. He, you know? Clearly, it's the worst. But I just I could see that that's probably what happened. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I can imagine it because I have gone to. I saw him at um, Covent Garden a couple years ago, and he came out for his curtain call wearing. Um, a different shirt than what he was wearing during the show. He was wearing like a cutoff, like gym shirt. You could see like his chest and like his abs through his mm. shirt. Like there was no reason for him to change into a different shirt for the bow, but he just wanted to show off his body. So I, he's just a sexy guy, and he's like thinks that everybody should enjoy being touched by him. You know, I wouldn't mind it. I well, well you and perhaps the chorus are in a different uh, boat. I I do think that um, this is not you know this is not the same level as the Domingo thing, obviously. However, the chorister apparently did feel uncomfortable, and there should be uh, an investigation yeah. to it as a result. Um, and uh, I, I do have to say, I think his response to the oh, accusations have been really hyperbolic. He, yeah. he compared himself to be a, a killer being led away. Just He's handling it as poorly as possible. Uh, Vittorio Gagolo is. Yes, yes, okay. he is. We'll uh, have to get him on the show to, yeah. to comment. <laughs> oh, that is going to be a spicy show. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, speaking of spicy, uh, I, you, I had not seen this this uh, this ad for Turandot before you showed it to me before the show started, and I love it. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's violent. I don't think that children should watch it. But um, <laughs> It's so violent. I mean, it's this is what opera is it's like a beautiful melody surrounded by you know death and like evil princesses and stuff like that and it, it's the kind of ad that i wish more opera companies were, were doing i feel yeah. like a lot of uh american companies in particular are not going to name any names but uh the the kind of video ads they make are just here is a static clip of the opera yeah uh with and no context exactly no... and like the and the singers are wearing their stage makeup and stage makeup looks terrible on tv absolutely <laughs> so, um it, Go on. Oh, you you go on. No, I was going to say that... Um, <laughs> you first, I insist. <laughs> the, um, 
Domingo slash Zelko Lucic out of Macbeth, allowing for Craig Kalkloch. Kalk, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know how to say your name. Please call us and tell us how you say your name. Good for him. You know, yeah. it's like, you, that's what opportunity is. It's like being, I mean, that's what luck is. It's like being ready, you know, and having your chance and then getting to do your Met debut. And like, I'm sure he's been putting in his work to, to get to being the understudy, but I'm so happy that somebody gets to, have some sing on stage with Anna Trepico because like people are obviously going to go to hear Anna Trepico and they're going to hear this guy and now people are going to know his name if they can figure out how to pronounce it. Oh, and by the way, um, Francisco Casanova, I wish we had more time to talk about him because I just learned about this singer a couple of weeks ago. Somebody played some records of him for me. I was like, holy crap, who is this guy? He's so good. So maybe we'll listen to him a little bit next week. This has just been a really tragic week between the Domingo scandal, Jesse Norman. Yeah. Well, let's cheer people up by hearing a little Beyonce and then we'll go to. Yeah, here we go. This is the real big news. This Mm. is Beyonce. Uh, it's, It's kind of great. Well, Leave your opinions on her operatic singing voice <laughs> on our Twitter page at Opera Box Score. But here, here it is. Let me do it one more time. <clears throat> Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. That's right. It's time for the good call and the bad call. I think my good call is probably Beyonce. I mean, I wouldn't call that <laughs> opera, but it's a beautiful vibrato, and the tone is clear, and I'm sure if she yeah. really wanted to like center the pitch that she could. you know. From Oliver Camacho, that is incredibly high praise. <laughs> so uh, do you have a good call for okay, me? Okay, I have a, a double good call, but it's Ooh. about the same thing. I saw the prima of Barbara Seville here at Lyric Opera Chicago, and I'm not going to lie. It's like, I love that opera, but I don't think it needs to be like the season opener of a major opera company. Mm. At any rate, Alessandro Corbelli, the veteran baritone, uh, sang the role of Dotto Bartolo, and he, it was a master class in the Italian buffa style. I mean, it was so impressive to watch that man do that that role. I know he's done those roles a gajillion times, but it's still really impressive. But a shout out to one of the Ryan Opera Center members. And I want to like pause here so we can prepare the pull quote so it can end up in the press kit. Um, Matilda Edge, who sang Berta, uh, her gleaming soprano could be easily heard over the marquee principals, male chorus, and orchestra in the chaotic first act finale, a scene-stealing debut. I'm so excited. I'm going to see it on a Wednesday. Nice. Yeah, that's my good call, too. Two, three good calls for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts there. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as we head into the spookiest time of year. We're back on Monday, October 7th, with more news from Opera Land and our hot takes on those stories. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.